Hello, and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and today I'm speaking with the director of the neon horror film Ennis Men, Mark Jenkin. I'm really excited to talk to you about Ennis Men, which is such a fascinating film. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what inspired it? What made you want to make this film? It came from my previous film, Bait, which um, had, had kind of broken broken out as an independent film over here in the UK. And uh, a lot of the critics and audience members were, were saying that it felt a little bit like a horror film, um, which for me, it was just, it was a drama. but um, And I couldn't really understand why people were saying it felt like a horror film but it made me start thinking about horror as a viable proposition for the for the next film that obviously i had to come up with something and so i thought it'd be fun to to write a horror film or to try and write a horror film and i wrote the screenplay for ennis main and then when i read it back i thought this this isn't this isn't a horror film i haven't written a horror film and then I, and but then i realized it's actually in the the horror is it kind of in the form in the way that I work with the specific camera that I work, the fact that I use post-sync sound and quite a non-linear approach to editing. And then that made me realise why people had sort of as, as bait feeling like it could almost be a horror film, the sense of foreboding, the sort of slight untrustworthiness of the form of the film. And so I then, I then realised that the horror would be in the form, if if it was horror at all, of, of Ennis Main. But as subject matter, I started with the idea of the Standing Stone because I'd where we where we are here in the far west of Cornwall, there's, there's standing stones everywhere, and they they've got different stories attached to them that everybody's really told when they're young kids. You know why why the stones are there, and there's a there's the the Christian interpretation of of why they're there, which is largely around sort of the petrification of of sinners, you know, which was the popular uh, myths about the the stones, which which I was told when I was young, which kind of haunted me as a as a young kid when you're sort of a sponge and you kind of take in everything. The idea that you could get turned to stone for for doing something wrong or something is perceived as as wrong that that was the starting point. And just as a cinematic sort of aesthetic. Um, the stone was was really appealing, and, and we built this. I built the story out out from there, really, into something that was like thematically, um, I say complex. That makes me sound really pretentious, but trying to make the theme quite oblique at the heart of it, but having this quite unsubtle filmmaking, unsubtle imagery, but with quite a subtle theme at the heart of it. And it's really interesting, too, because having been to Cornwall and spent a good part of my life in England as a whole and seeing the way that I, I assume it's Cornish or Welsh that's that's integrated into the Cornish Cornish. Yeah. OK, Sim similar language, but yeah, Cornish. Yeah, it's really very interesting not knowing the language, but still having been around places with these kinds of inscriptions and these kinds of standing stones. I, I wonder for you, the evocative nature of the geography, how much did you feel like you needed to use the geography to evoke the screenplay? Yeah, well, I, th I mean, you know, I'm, I'm here in 
in the far west of Penwis. So where did you visit when you were here? Let's see. I, I basically rode the train everywhere. Right. I was primarily spending time going to Zenner and... Tintagel and Penwith. And I did a road trip around the area as well. And well, yeah, because the the underground, the mining scene was is underground at Zena in a mine at at Zena. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and almost everything is on the West Penwith Moor. So the the island, the actual wide shot of the island is in Wales, is Scomer Island off the west coast of Wales, which as the crow flies is just over there but to drive you have to go all the way through england and bristol and then back through wales together but it's a very similar very similar landscape so we used that as the wide shot and then was and then we built all the other locations on the island from fragments of west penwith that we could imagine being on the island so we were able to rule out a lot of locations because you just say well that doesn't look like it could be on that island so we never stepped foot on the island that you see in the film but we were constantly referring to a still image that we had of it when we were picking the locations but a lot of it was just you know it it was going to be set it was always going to be a film set on an island it was going to be contained within an island and West Penwith here the West Penwith Moor is almost like an island you know the way things are going we're not going to need much of a sea level rise and we'll be an island Mm. here so it has that feeling, you know, it's it's coastal, but the gra- the, but the land is high. It, there's no trees or very few trees. So it was always going to be um, the main sort of focus of the film was going to be this landscape. And also somebody asked me a minute ago and said, you know, was it tricky filming in such a remote location? And it was, it's not remote to us. I think ev- everybody on the cast and crew was going home and sleeping in their, their own beds every night during the shoot because it's just, it's just here, you know, this is our, that's the landscape we kind of live in here. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in a town at the moment, but I only have to get on my bike and go five minutes up the road and I'm out in the middle of nowhere. So it's, it's really my place. It's my landscape. It's, it's the, I think it's the place that I can represent with an authenticity on screen that I can't with any other landscape or, you know, town or city. So it was, all, it was always going to be the focus of the film. I didn't realise quite how much of a of a presence it was going to be because I think when I was writing the script, I didn't really, I couldn't really picture the sort of silence of it and the, the lack of dialogue. It mm-hmm. wasn't something that was particularly prominent within the screenplay. But then when you start shooting, you start putting the film together because think, oh, actually, this is this is a film about place as much as as anything, time and place. And it comes across with a very specific kind of cinematic language that almost feels like. Chantal Ackerman meets horror meets Cornwall meets mining village kind of aesthetics of the 70s. And I I wonder for you in terms of trying to develop that silent, slow cinema feeling in the 70s aesthetic, how did you feel like you had to go about that? Did you have any guiding principles? I think the guiding principles are the equipment but it's it's set by the choice of the camera you know the camera it's just it's just there behind me that you know that the clockwork camera that i use that that can't you know you can't record sound with it it's too it's not a sync camera and it's too noisy and and it's clockwork so it only runs for 27 seconds before it has to be wound again we shoot on 100 foot rolls of film so all of these all these limitations 
I think, evoke that era of cinema without having to consciously do it. But once that decision has been made, I don't have to think about it again because it will look as it looks because of that because of that equipment. The thing, I mean, it, it, it is interesting because I went back and revisited um, Chantal Ackerman, you know, to be like, uh, an influence. And I go when I was at film school and didn't say it was an influence. And I went back and looked at it and thought, well, yeah, maybe maybe it was. You know, maybe it went in it, it went in there at a certain time and it came out while we were making this film in the same way that a lot of the nineteen seventies. British independent genre films and a lot of the British TV um, obviously had a big effect. I, I was born in the 70s. I was born in 76. So my sort of film watching started in the 80s, really. But in the 80s, it, it was still 70s stuff that we were watching. So I think I grew up on that sort of 70s cinema where we were where th- and 70s TV, where places like the BBC, where people were given budgets, small pots of money mm-hmm. and total freedom to go and do what they wanted to do and came back with stuff that was that had been produced under the radar that nobody had been keeping an eye on and it came back and it was kind of crazy and it was brilliant because it was made with no money and no time and we're really, we're working with those same constraints. You know, we got funded by Film 4 here but we but it was a budget level where we didn't need approvals and stuff so we were able just to go off and and do what we wanted and actually i mean film four really encouraged us to do that they were the execs who were attached were quite excited about the idea of right it's not a big risk just go and do it and you know come back when come back when you're done so i think i think the 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 formal approach the equipment the budget level and the ethos all really fits with that sort of 1970s spirit of experimentation that certainly existed in in uk tv and, and cinema yeah. to a certain extent and i think you know i think if this if ennis main came out now if ennis main came out in the 70s you know it, w- it wouldn't be thought of as experimental or weird or odd no. every- everything looked like that it's funny like i was also thinking about the stone tape when i was mm-hmm. watching it as well which nigel neal's brilliant bbc I don't I don't know that I would call it a drama, but it's it's certainly yeah, it's, it's a play, isn't it? Yeah. But um, yeah, I, mean, I curated a season of films at the BFI in London during January around the release of Ennis Main and I, I programmed the, the stone tape. Nice. And it's a yeah, I mean, that's just. Yeah, that, I mean, that you know, that went out once on TV and then had a repeat was never meant to be. You know, to 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 think that the B, the BFI kind of put it out on DVD and it's now thought of as a classic and stuff like that. I think it just shows how far away from that sort of risk taking and experimentation we've 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 gone. That these things that were meant to be seen once and then probably taped over, like a lot of them were, and now held up as as classics. You know, they they are great, but they they should. You know, we should be making that stuff all the time. They shouldn't be anomalies. They sh- that should be the, the standard. Because you know? ex- they weren't expensive and they were done quickly. And it's also kind of a testament to the fact that there isn't such experimentation in general, that this does stand out as, as such an unusual, visually arresting piece of filmmaking. So, Yeah, I think I should be grateful for that because whether 
whether people ultimately like the film or not, it gets noticed in the first instance because it doesn't look like anything else, which is always a surprise to me because when I'm making it, because I because all of my work that I'm making kind of looks like this and I'm on it full time. When, Especially when I'm in the edit and I'm working quite on my own, I get to the end of the process and think, oh, God, this looks so boring. This looks like so run of the mill and blue. And, you know, and then it goes public and everybody goes, what is, what is this? You know? So it, yeah. it, it clearly does stand out and feel, feel a little bit different. So I, yeah, maybe I should be glad that there's not more people working in that way. I do have to ask, how you feel about the way that you tied in your story with both the seafaring aspects and the mining aspects. And because I feel like you're hinting at a lot of themes that I'm not necessarily picking up as someone who doesn't come from that area of the world. And so I wondered if you wanted, if you wanted to make explicit anything about your thematics from that sense i definitely won't make anything explicit but i I certainly you know fear felt a a need to put cornish working people on the screen and to not romanticize our industrial past Mm -hmm. which i think is i think there is a danger that that it does get romanticized like the mining industry that cornwall no longer has gets gets romanticized mostly by you know by people who don't know about it ultimately and it gets mourned as something that was great and you know in some ways it it was great and in other ways it really wasn't great and Cornwall's still got a huge mining industry here which is the china clay mines but nobody talks about it but once they're gone they'll probably be romanticized in the in the same way but at the moment it's an incredibly destructive industry hasn't got the, the, the I don't think it's got the kind of de- danger for for the working people like the the tin and copper mining had but it's still there as an industry that we don't romanticize because it's current I think it ties into sort of like you know if there is a if there is an environmental comment within the films the idea that the industrial past that this island had and you could read the islanders all of the British Isles that is the glory of industry disappears and be, and becomes ruined and is very quickly taken back by the natural world. Mm-hmm. So in some ways we're, you know, we talk about saving the planet, but we're not really talking about saving the planet. We're talking about saving ourselves because in one way or another, the planet will continue. We can have huge detrimental effects to the planet, but the planet doesn't, care about us the planet as a thing couldn't care less whether we're there or not you know it would be better off if we weren't um so i I like the idea of how transient our existence is how quickly it, it can be it can be taken back but also how you know this the the destruction that the industry creates is not just like an environmental thing it was a it was a really human thing you know so the 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 it, the great wealth that was built on industries was done on the back of working people who were lucky to survive, let alone make anything out of. It doesn't exist now because we farm out all of that to other unfortunate people and different corners of the planet. But this sort of cycle kind of goes on, and so I think that was that was important for me to to sort of personify that 
through a very specific Cornish angle. So, you know, for for the seven lifeboatmen who were represented as drowned on the film, that they stand for every person who was who lost their life going to help somebody and for every all of those seven very Cornish miners below the ground, they stand for every single working person who who died making somebody else rich. So there's mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, my intention is there's a universality to it and it can only be universal if the specifics are, are correct and the authenticity is, is correct. Well, it's a wonderful film and I want to thank you so much for sharing the flower and the lichen and... <laughs> for all of your work on it and I look forward to more wonderful things in the future thanks Ariel well lovely to chat brilliant yeah lovely to chat to you take care see ya bye cheers bye bye thank you for listening and thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair Take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on Support the Show in the show notes. We don't want your money, we want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. (laughs) 